A reading from St. Luke, chapter 3. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. O Lord, have mercy on us. Thanks be to God. A reading from Luke chapter 19. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowds he could not, because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be in the guest, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. O Lord, have mercy on us. Thanks be to God. Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father, and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. What then shall we do? It's a great question that the crowds asked John in our first lesson. 
John came preaching repentance, calling people to turn from sin, to trust in God, and so to avoid the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, he said. Bear fruits. For the one who repents was a bad tree, an unfruitful tree. The one who repents was a bad tree and has now become a good tree. Once you were thorns and thistles, and now you are a fig tree and a grapevine. Once you were a stump, decomposing, rotten, fit only to be burned. But now a shoot has formed, new life, new growth, green leaves and blossoms and the joy of fruitfulness. What then shall we do? When you were a bad tree, what to do was obvious. Anything except bear fruit. Life under the reign of sin and death meant that the only question you ever had to ask yourself was this. What do I want? What will make me happy? Now, the more visible forms of that kind of life we would call narcissism, self-absorption, using others for your own gain, your own advantage, your own desires and pleasure. What do I want? What will make me happy? Most people tend to be more subtle, however, and we learn in life that the best way for me to get ahead is often helping others just a bit along the way. I can get what I want by helping you to get what you want. There's a book title that captures this really well. There's a fellow named Adam Grant who writes about organizational psychology. He, he has studied why certain groups work well and others don't. And a few years ago, he published a book with this title, Give and Take, Why Helping Others Drives Our Success. Adam Grant shows that the best way to succeed is not necessarily a straight line to your goals, only thinking about yourself. He shows instead that helping others actually helps you to get ahead. Helping others is one of the predictors of success. The most successful people have gotten there by helping others along the way. If you want to be successful, you should strategically incorporate some altruism, helping others, even if it costs you in the short term. Why? Because it will benefit you. It will pay off in the long run. But do you notice what's kind of strange about that? What's the underlying question? What's the only question that such strategizing asks? It's this. What do I want? What will make me happy? How can I succeed? The good that you might do for others along the way, according to that strategy, well, it's secondary. It's accidental, even. It's just a byproduct of your success. That is the way that we think about life by nature. Under the reign of sin and death, as bad trees that don't produce good fruit, what to do is obvious. Whatever you want, whatever is good for you, and if you can do it in such a way that people think that you're being helpful or charitable, all the better. That helps you out in the end. But when someone repents, when someone repents, everything changes. Maybe it's helpful to review just a bit here. Three weeks ago, on the first midweek service in Lent, we heard the story of King Saul. 
who would not repent. In his hardness of heart, he refused to acknowledge his sin. He made excuses for his unfruitfulness. He justified the decisions that he made for his own benefit, thinking only about what was good for him. Saul showed us how not to repent. Two weeks ago, David, King David, showed us how to repent. In his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah, he was living for himself. The only question he asked was the question of a bad tree. What do I want? What will make me happy? But when God sent the prophet Nathan to hold up a mirror to David's life, David saw what a dreadful state he was in. He saw the deceit and the lie that he had believed, the lie that goodness is bound up in living for yourself. But when Nathan called him to repent, David acknowledged his sin and turned from it. No excuses, no justifying. I am a bad tree that deserves to be cut down, he said. And in his mercy, God spared David. Indeed, not only did God not cut down the bad tree, but what did he do? He turned David again into a good tree, a good tree that can bear good fruit. Last week, we heard how God disciplined David because he loved him. He had taken David from being a bad tree and turned him into a good tree. But what do you do with a good tree? You feed and you water it. You tend and care for it. And you prune it. You cut off the wild growth, the growth that threatens and hinders fruitfulness. You cut off the dead branches and you give the tree shape, healthy and full, so that it can bear much fruit. For David... That pruning was the death of his son. A novice gardener, someone who is new to gardening, is always hesitant to lop off some branch or stem from a living tree. How can that be good for the tree? But the master gardener knows that it won't kill the tree, that actually to let the tree go unpruned will do harm, and that the end result of pruning will be more and better fruit. God is a master gardener who knows that as painful as it is, This pruning is what his trees need. This discipline is what David needed. God is a father who disciplines the children whom he loves. This week then, just a moment ago, we moved ahead from the story of Saul and David all the way to the New Testament, to the Gospel of Luke. And today you heard about fruitfulness. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, John cried. If you are a good tree, having been given new life by the master gardener, if you're alive, resurrected by baptism into Christ, well, then you have lots to learn. The crowds who were listening to John captured it well. What then shall we do? Before, it was obvious what to do. What do I want to do? What will make me happy? What is the question to ask now instead? Let's hear again what John said. Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. To the tax collectors, he said, collect no more than you are authorized to do. To soldiers, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be content with your wages. What is the underlying question there? It is not the question of a bad tree. What do I want? Instead, it's this. 
What is good for my neighbor? How can I serve my neighbor? You serve your neighbor first by helping him when he is in need. Does he need clothing? Do you have clothing? Give him some. Does he need food? Do you have food? Give him some. This brings back something important we learned in the Old Testament lesson on Sunday. In the wilderness, God instructed the people of Israel to gather enough manna for one day, not keeping any over for the next day, but trusting that God would provide them with manna day after day. One of the reasons we keep things back for ourselves instead of giving them to our neighbors in need is that we're worried about the future. We're worried about the future. That's something that feels very pertinent right now. No one is free from that worry about the future. We worry, and so what do we do? Well, we've seen this in spades nowadays. We hoard and we stockpile. We keep surpluses for ourselves, often at the expense of giving them to our neighbors in need. Have you ever noticed what we pray for in the Lord's Prayer? We pray for our daily bread. We pray that God would provide us with what we need from day to day. Jesus told that parable once about the rich fellow who filled his barns with all his abundant produce. He tore them down and built larger ones to store all his goods. And he said to himself, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Therefore I tell you, Jesus said, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, Jesus says, asking what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear, for the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. If instead of thinking of ourselves first, instead of thinking first of what we want, what pleases us. If instead we think first of the people that God has put into our lives, our families, our neighbors, what they need, how we can serve them, here's what you discover. That just as God has promised to care for you daily, providing for all your needs of body and soul, so also he uses you to care for your neighbors. How does God give daily bread to those in need? One of the most obvious ways is when those who have plenty give of their abundance to those who have too little. But see how opposite this is to life as a bad tree. 
See what a turn is required in repentance, turning away from myself and my own desires towards the needs of my neighbor. That's what it means to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And you do it all within the context of the various responsibilities that God has given you in life. So if you're a soldier or a tax collector, you do your duty in service to whoever has authority over you and in service to your neighbors. And you do not use your position for your own advantage. The same goes for any job, indeed any position in life. Think most basically of what it means to be a father, a mother, a husband, a wife, a child, or a worker. It means most basically that you owe service to someone else. You owe someone else something. You are responsible to them. You owe them love. That is what defines your life instead of service to yourself, instead of love of yourself. That is the fruit of repentance, that you live for others and not for yourself. That is love, which is the law that governs the new life of believers. Now here it's important to say that the law of love is not like other laws. Other laws make prescriptions. They tell you specifically what you ought or ought not to do. Other laws do not require that your heart be oriented one way or the other. The police don't care whether you're grumbling or cheerful when you obey the speed limit. They just want you to obey it. But that's not how love works. There's no point at which you can say, I've done enough and I don't need to do any more. There's no checklist or measurement for whether or not you've satisfied the requirements of love. For love, the love that grows in a heart turned from sin to Christ, a heart turned from selfishness to selflessness, a heart turned from serving myself to serving others, that love knows no bounds. It is simply fruitful. A good tree doesn't bear fruit up to some quota, asking, have I borne enough yet? Instead, it bears fruit as long as there is fruit to be born. Life under the reign of sin is a life burdened with laws that must be fulfilled and satisfied. Life in Christ, a life of repentance, is set free from the question of whether I've done enough because Christ has done it all already. He loved perfectly. He lived for others and not for himself. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He has done it all already. And you, who trust in him, by faith, his righteousness, his obedience, his love, is credited to you. You are free. And in that freedom, a life of repentance is a life of continually bearing fruit, of always doing more, of always seeing need and satisfying it, of always asking again and again and again, how can I do good for my neighbor? How can I love him? That sounds tiresome. If that sounds tiresome, it's your flesh that is reacting. If it sounds unsustainable, it seems that way only insofar as you are still in the flesh. For in Christ, you have the source of all good things. You possess Christ. You possess love in human flesh. As surely as he gave bread to the Israelites day by day in the wilderness, as surely as he gives you all that you need to support this body and life day by day, so also will he give you his Holy Spirit. So that even as you give, expecting nothing in return, even as you do good to those who cannot or will not return your favor, even as you spend yourself dry 
Caring for the needs of your neighbor, Christ is your endless supply of all that you need to carry on. That is what Zacchaeus discovered when Jesus entered his house. Zacchaeus didn't do some calculation to restore only what he had stolen, to make sure that he'd still have enough to live on. He didn't think of himself any longer. He thought of the poor and those whom he defrauded. He could do that because he had Jesus. Today, salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The world cannot comprehend love. It can only understand love which is selfishness in disguise, love which is a means to pursue my own self-interest. Repentance makes no sense to the world. The world cannot understand the goodness of living for others and not for yourself. And that is what makes repentance hard. Repentance and bearing fruit in keeping with repentance involves turning 180 degrees, going in the opposite direction, going even against my own good in order to do good to others. That's only possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's only possible because Jesus has done it first. It's only possible for you and for me to make a beginning here in this life battling against our flesh with its passions and desires. It's possible because Jesus gave himself up on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, to give us life and salvation, to lead us in the way of repentance, to give us a life not as it was before, but a life in him, a life of abundance, a life of love. May God grant to us his grace to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.